chapter. We'll begin in verse 21 and read to the end of the chapter. Hear now God's word. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent to Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only this trade of ours is in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's uh, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, What man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said this, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. The prophet Hosea addressed the apostasy, that is, the falling away of Israel, and he made this indictment. They set up kings, but not by me. They make princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off or destroyed. Everyone worships something or someone. 
But if there is only one true and living God, then all the other objects of worship are false gods. They are idols. As John Calvin put it, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. At the heart of the gospel message is a call to turn from those idols and to bow down to the Lord of glory. It's an all or nothing proposition. You don't get to have this God and a few others. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. All idols are the creation of man. They are fictional creations uh, that he ultimately, which means ultimately he is, the man is the manipulator and controller of those creations because every man and every woman wants to be their own God. But they're not real. They have no power. However, when men rebel and reject their Creator, there is a vacuum that has to be filled with something or someone. As Romans 1 tells us, that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Like Athens, Ephesus was a city full of idols, and the Apostle Paul had been confronting them there at Ephesus for nearly three years. He's now getting ready to leave the city, and in verse 23 it says, And about that time there arose a great commotion, disturbance, if you will, about the way, about the Christians. Those three years of daily gospel work were now bearing fruit, And the idolatrous culture of the Ephesians was starting to feel the effects of this. People, you see, ignore those things that are not a threat, things that are irrelevant, but they cannot ignore what they perceive to be a threat to them or to their culture. Paul had stirred the pot, and now the inevitable hostile reaction was emerging. We've seen this over and over in the book of Acts, and here it is again at Ephesus. And so, as we see in our own idolatrous culture, outrage, some of which is disingenuous, by the way, takes center stage, and indeed, in our own day, there is a great commotion. I'm reminded, just popped in my head some years ago, um, uh, Ben House made the comment, he was teaching in public school, and he had used the word idolatrous And one of the coaches uh, said to him, Mr. House, why are you always using such big words? And he says, it's no bigger than the word basketball. Um, So you just have to know what it means. Of course, to be idolatrous means to be the worshiper of idols. So the opposition in Ephesus was now way more than that from the local synagogue. It, It was pretty regular for Paul to go to the synagogue and then have Some of the Jews get disturbed and and come after him. Now it tells us the whole city basically is about to erupt. Everywhere, the and I'm going to use a word several times today, everywhere the unadulterated gospel, and the reason I say that is because there are many adulterated, watered-down versions of the gospel that don't provoke anybody to anything. But the unadulterated gospel 
uh, when it everywhere it goes, opposition arises and difficulties multiply. Obviously, there was a substantial impact on the culture, not only to the teaching of uh, to the teaching of Paul, but more likely because of the lives which had been transformed by the gospel. You'll recall from the last chapter that millions of dollars worth of magic books had been voluntarily burned because many people had turned away from their occult practices because of their conversion to Christ. This event was not only a public spectacle, but it was also, as we now see, having a financial impact on the local businesses. By the way, it's the money here that's the real idol. The the real rival of God is the money. That which has been elevated as the ultimate goal of life. And so Luke says in verse 23, about that time there was a great commotion about the way. They were especially troubled about Paul. Verse 26, moreover you see and hear that not only at Ephesus... But throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded many people uh, to turn has turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Anybody surprised that these things made with hands are not gods? But you see, it is not acceptable to point out that the emperor has no clothes. Paul told the Ephesians that their idols had no clothes. And by the way, our American idols are naked also. When Paul said this, and when we point this out, people feel threatened, and they accuse us of judging them. Certainly Paul wasn't surprised by this reaction, since he'd seen it many times. In fact, if we don't see this, then it is probably because we are not preaching an unadulterated gospel. The gospel demands that we forsake all things and follow Christ. That's the demand. That's what the gospel is about. That's the starting place of the grace of God, of a new life, of rescue from this old life, this life of futility and meaninglessness. Right now, many evangelicals get the most alarmed when believers say things that upset unbelievers. That's what disturbs them the most. Lies are always offended by the truth. Now I acknowledge, and Paul talks about this, we can be offensive ourselves, and we should not be. But the truth always offends. The darkness always hates the light. Jesus said in John 12:24, "Most assuredly or truly truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain." We are following Christ, we've taken up our cross, we are we've died to ourselves, and now we are giving life to the world through the preaching of the gospel. In fact, one of the crucial things that Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross is found in John 16:33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Well, that's good news. What's the next sentence? In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. 
I have overcome the world. Imagine yourself in a huge gathering with thousands of people. They're all worked up about a small group, uh, by a small group of leaders cheering them on, and there's a certain even liturgical feel to the well-known rituals, and soon the crowd is chanting louder and louder and louder with a certain rhythmic expression of tribal unity and local pride. It's designed to give energy to those who are going out to fight their battles and to strike terror into their enemies, and soon you find yourself caught up in the moment. Of course, I just described the Texas A&M football game which could be another form of idolatry, but that save that for another day. However, this is the kind of crowd that had assembled in Ephesus at the theater, at the temple of Artemis or Diana. So then comes Demetrius. He's at the center of this great commotion. He was a silversmith who made shrines to Diana. Diana uh, and or Artemis... Uh, Those are the Greek and Roman names for the same goddess. And they brought, as verse 26 says, no small profit to the craftsmen. So the story was that in the distant past, a large meteorite had fallen on Ephesus, and the local folks considered it a gift from Zeus or a gift from heaven, from above. And in fact, they saw saw it as a statue of the goddess Uh, Artemis or or Diana, and that's what the town clerk refers to in verse 35 when he says, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? So it's a massive temple that's been built around Artemis or Diana, and she was worshipped by many. Her cult, by the way, was run entirely by female officials. She was the fertility goddess, and artistic statues of her were not only in the temple, but smaller versions of her were made and sold as basically what we would call souvenirs. But you could take one, a little image of Diana, home to your house. So you could have your own idol, your own image. And let's just say that her image reflected the fact that she supplied the world with a lot of mother's milk, not unlike Washington, D.C. Kent Hughes said this, Demetrius did not have any trouble getting a crowd together because they were celebrating the Artemis festival called Artemisia, which was a month of debauchery during which pilgrims came from everywhere to participate in athletic contests, drink, carousing, and to have a ritual fling with prostitutes. Achilles, Tatius, an eyewitness of one of these festivals, left this description, quote, It was the festival of Artemis, and every place was full of drunken men, and all the marketplace was full of a multitude of men throughout the whole night. When I read that, I just thought of Mardi Gras. And I think it may also, we could think of another situation that's similar to this, hopefully without the debauchery, was even in opening chapters of Acts is Passover, where all the Jews had gathered to celebrate the Passover feast. So in this case, this is all the worshipers of Diana who've come together at Ephesus, and and that's what's going on. So Demetrius and the local 
and the local silversmith union were not happy about the declining sales of their idols, and he blamed Paul and the people of the way for the declining revenues. I'm guessing that Budweiser and Target could sympathize. Any decline in the power of Artemis in the eyes of the people had serious consequences for their revenues, for tourism, the local economy, not to mention the direct impact on Demetrius and his fellow silversmiths and souvenir makers. It's It's remarkable to see that the spread of the Christian faith had had such a dramatic effect on the culture and as individuals embraced the gospel, that, and it showed up in how they lived. So verses 25 through 27, he, that is Demetrius, called them together with the workers of similar, similar occupation. Men, you know what we have, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So do so. not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So Paul's main offense was that he persuaded and turned away many people, saying that these are not gods that are made with hands. Now, not only was the gospel a threat to their livelihood, but Demetrius, I think, very cleverly, rhetorically, wisely, uh, brings in another argument. If he was just getting up and saying, this is hurting our business, that wasn't quite enough, so he wants to draw this in and make it bigger. And so he claims that this was a threat to their religion and even a threat to the entire city. You see, this was Ephesian Pride Month. Likewise, the unadulterated gospel is still a threat to modern-day idols and those who make their living from them, whether it is sex, money, power, leisure, fame, sports, entertainment, and much more. Essentially, even a little child knows that man-made idols are worthless and powerless. Even little girls know how to play with dolls. You remember how Isaiah mocked the people of his own day over this issue? I want to take the time to just read from Isaiah 44. It's, it's so, it's such a, uh, again, it's, it's a mockery of idols. It's a, it's a laughing at this because it is so ridiculous. So starting in verse 9, Isaiah 44, those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit, They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. They ought to be ashamed, but they're not. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing, that can't do anything? Surely all of his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they're mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear They shall be ashamed together. The the blacksmith with the tongs worked one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arm. So even he is hungry because of all the work he's done, and his strength fails. 
He drinks no water and is faint. So he puts in all this effort to make this idol. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass. He makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself. He takes the cypress and the oak, and he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he shall take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image, and he falls down to it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles and bakes it. Oh, I read that. He burns half of it in the fire, and this half he, and with this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast, and he's satisfied, and he warms himself, and he says, Ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of this in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, back to Ephesus. Like most mobs, many were just caught up in the moment. And In fact, Luke reports, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Apparently, Paul was champing at the bit to get into the middle of it all, but we read in verse 30 and 31, and when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, the Asiarchs, who were his friends, some of them had been converted, uh, sent, to plead, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Paul's like a general on the battlefield. His life was too valuable to risk. But then we see that the city clerk finally brought some calm and order to the situation, reminding them that they all knew that, quote, this, you all know this, right? Why? Don't get upset about the, these, this, the people of the way or Paul because you all know that the city of Ephesus is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana of the image which fell down from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, rashly. In other words, Diana's the real god. She's the real goddess. You have nothing to worry about. So he pointed out that the real danger they needed to concern themselves with wasn't Paul and the other Christians. They could deal with them in court, but rather they should worry about the possibility of being charged with riotous behavior by the Roman authorities. Verse 40. You better worry about what the state's going to do to you 
if this gets out of hand because they don't like it when things get out of hand. That, that could bring them way more trouble than they bargained for. And so what we see here is through God's kind providence, the impartiality of the proconsul uh, Gallio at Corinth in the previous chapter and now the friendship of the Asiarchs and the cool-headedness of the city clerk at Ephesus gave the gospel freedom to expand. I'm reminded of what was said when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. How could this end well? And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, as we were promised in the coming of our Savior, that he shall be called Emmanuel because God is with us, no matter what the circumstances. Father, thank you for preserving your infallible word for us that we might hear and see your mighty works and learn how the good news has spread like wildfire through the nations and the world. May we too open our mouths to speak the good news, to be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. And may we lay hold of the ancient promise you made to your people, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions, and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. He says the biblical explanation of the end of societies use it's not just something. Uh, he says most people describe societies in some kind of cyclical way. They're born, they live, they die. He said the biblical explanation of the end of societies uses the concept of judgment. It depicts them as either having submitted themselves to God or else having rebelled against him. Far from being a typical nationalistic exaltation of a chosen people, the Old Testament portrays Israel as having become an evil nation, fully deserving the judgment of God meted to it. Its rebellion against God was accompanied by a turning to idols, and this idolatry brought the nation to its end. Hosea 8.4, with their silver and gold, said the prophet Hosea, they made idols for their own destruction. Continuing, idolatry in its larger meaning is properly understood as any substitution of what is created for the Creator. People may worship nature, money, mankind, power, history, or social and political systems instead of the God who created them. 
The New Testament writers in particular recognize that the relationship need not explicitly be one of cultic worship, like liturgical worship. A man can place anyone or anything at the top of his pyramid of values, and that is ultimately what he serves. The ultimacy of that service profoundly affects the way he lives. When the society around him also turns away from God to idols, it is an idolatrous society and therefore is headed to destruction. Western society, he continues, in turning away from the Christian faith has turned to other things. This process is commonly called secularization, but that conveys only the negative aspect. The word connotes the turning away from the worship of God while ignoring the fact that something is being turned to in its place. The participants in this struggle, along with their ecclesiastical admirers, people from the church who think this is okay, insist that we have to choose between left and right on every issue and that there is no third way. But if we are successful in identifying the first two ways, that is the left and the right, as idols, then it is reasonable to conclude that there must be a third way. That's ending Schlossberg. Our nation is currently under God's judgment for her idolatry. We should remember that Ezekiel 14, 6-8 gives this warning to his people, to God's people, to the church. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me, and sets up his idols in his heart, and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him, goes to church, comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, that is God, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you will know that I am Jehovah. My question for you today is, as we come to the Lord's table, what are the idols in your heart? What tempts you? As I said at the beginning of the sermon, at the heart of the gospel message is a call to turn from those idols and bow to the Lord of glory. It's an all or nothing proposition. Are you all in? All of you. All of you and all of you. Again, Jesus said you can't serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or idols. And so as we come to the table, this is a time of renewal, a time for us to repent of our sins and to remember that we are his people.
that we've denied ourselves, that he's laid down his life for us, that he is the Lord of glory, and we're his followers all the way. So let's do so now as we come to eat and partake of the table. And now, O Lord, teach us to come to you when our spirits are depressed and when we grow weary or anxious, draw us to yourself. For you are the only one who can repair our hearts and furnish us with a ballast to render us steadfast. Without your grace to uphold us, we are but wind. May we be in union with you who does not move and is not changed by time or circumstances, but who sits in the heavens and moves all things by your powerful hand according to your infinite skill. While we have you as our God, we have your immutability for our advantage. The nearer we come to you, the more stable we will have, the more stability we will have in our, ourselves. The further from you, the more liable we are to change. Bless now our rest and our feast. In Jesus' name, amen. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.